Well, go ahead uh, and grab a sermon handout. I've got lots and lots of blanks for you filler out or blank people. Um, those are over there. And grab a Bible too if you need one or a Bible app. And uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7 today. Acts 14, 1 through 7. Uh, it's a relatively short passage, um, but it's got an important message attached to it. I will say this just on the front end. Towards the end of the of this sermon, I'm going to release our eagles and our middle schoolers. Uh, middle schoolers, we would love for you to help either with our eagles or with one of the other classes. But either way, uh, Mary Claire and Ashley are going to be at the door. So when, when we get to that point, I will let you guys know, and then y'all can go out. I know Ashley scouted out a good spot outside to do some outdoor activities and stuff. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And then I just want to say to you on Zoom, when I get to that point, when I release uh, the middle schoolers and the Eagles, um, if you're sitting there with your child uh, watching this, uh, that might be a good time for them to just, just take a break and run into the next room. Uh, we're just going to talk about some stuff that uh, I, I, wanna, I don't want to surprise you with what we're going to talk about, uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later, so I'll, I'll be sure and let you know. Okay, I know that sounds so enigmatic, doesn't it? Uh, okay. Um, I mentioned this last week, if you guys were here with us, but uh, today's passage, it, it feels really repetitive. It, it, it repeats some of the same exact elements that we saw with Paul in Pisidian Antioch, which is when he reached the mainland in his first missionary journey. And what we can tell, because the book of Acts is a literary presentation, it is a structured piece of literature, and the inspired author, Luke, is obviously establishing a pattern with these parallels that we're going to see over and over again in the missionary uh, work of Paul. And so in both cities, both last week in Pisidian Antioch and this week in Iconium, we're going to see a whole bunch of parallels. And I just want to go through them quickly to kind of set the stage for our sermon today. But for instance, we see this in both cities. Paul went first to the synagogue. Why? Paul was Jewish. Barnabas was Jewish. They loved their Jewish brothers and sisters. They wanted to see their Jewish brothers and sisters come to know Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So they first went to the synagogue. Paul preached the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, which is another word for Messiah or the anointed one that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, would look forward to. Uh, many people, both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, uh, accepted that good news in, in the midst of him sharing it, preaching it. There were unbelieving Jews who opposed and contradicted Paul. A lot of the times those were the, the, the rulers of the synagogue, the leaders of the synagogue. Uh, then Paul continued to speak out boldly, even in the face of fierce opposition. Many pagan Gentiles, the circle kind of widens, and we see people beyond the synagogue, beyond the God-fearing uh, Gentiles and the Jews. We see people from out in the pagan society of these cities coming to faith in Christ as Paul starts spending more time talking to them about it. We also see Paul's opponents leveraging social and political pressure to persecute and intimidate Paul and Barnabas. And then Paul eventually leaves the area. He's going to do that again today, but he continues preaching the good news. And we're going to talk about that. So based on that pattern, I hope you see that it is obvious that Paul is convinced, utterly convinced. He believes that he has received God's truth. And so he considered it a stewardship, an issue of stewardship to speak that truth that God had revealed to him uh, convincingly. We're going to talk about that confidently and consistently over and over again without changing his message. 
And all the while, while he's doing this, trusting the Lord for the results. And this is why Paul was always asking other Christians and churches that he helped establish to pray for his ability to speak boldly. We see this several times throughout his letters. Prayers to speak boldly. And so if we, like Paul, if we know that we have received God's truth, we don't have to be shy about that as Christians, okay? We don't have to act like there's no such thing as absolute truth or objective reality or objective truth or moral truth that stems from the character of God himself. We don't have to act like that's not true. When we believe, when we're convinced that we have received God's truth, then we too must speak that truth boldly, and we must do so with humble hearts and in prayerful dependence upon our Lord Jesus Christ, just like Paul did. But sometimes, and this is not just true for me, sometimes we are hesitant to speak the truth plainly and boldly, especially when we think it might stir up opposition or division. Am I right? Right. And basically our society tells us that anytime you open your mouth about what you believe about Jesus Christ, you're stirring up opposition and division. So just, you know, shut your mouth. Stop talking about that. It's all subjective anyway, right? But we hesitate and we we grow hesitant to want to share the truth plainly and boldly. And and scripture does not call us to be obnoxious, self-righteous jerks, okay? That's not what I'm saying here, right? Um... But our Lord does call us to lovingly speak his truth both clearly and confidently for the good of the people he's placed in our lives and ultimately for his glory. We don't speak that truth to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or to, you know, because we always want to be right or something like that. It's because we love the people that God's placed in our lives and because we want to glorify God with our words. Today's big idea is simply this, guys. That speaking truth requires moral courage. Speaking truth requires moral courage. If we don't have moral courage, we will not speak the truth plainly and boldly as, as we ought to. And I really like, I was looking up moral courage, and sometimes I end up on dictionary.com, sometimes Wikipedia, but I'm interested what our society thinks about these terms that I use sometimes. So moral courage, this has been around forever, right, in, in all of human history, but, but that, that term, that phrase, moral courage, I really like the definition I found on this nursing website. You can imagine in the world of nursing, and we have some nurses in here, that it's important to have moral courage. And so this is what the, uh, I think it's the uh, Association of Nursing, it's on your handout, Association of Nursing Colleges or something like this, but here's how they define moral courage. It's the ability to stand up for and practice that which one considers ethical moral behavior when faced with a dilemma, even if it means going against countervailing pressure to do otherwise, even if it puts them at personal risk of losing employment, isolation from peers, and other negative consequences. Folks, it's this kind of courage that this website lays out here, this moral courage, that allows us to speak God's truth convincingly, confidently, and consistently, just like Paul does in our passage today. So with moral courage, we can speak truth convincingly. Paul was in a synagogue in Iconium, not because he was on vacation. Why was he there? It's because he was convinced of the truth of the gospel, and so he was there on a mission to speak that truth plainly and convincingly to other people. 
His goal was to convince others of the truth that he himself was convinced of. Look at verse 1. It says, In Iconium, they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, entered the synagogue of the Jews together. Again, they're, they're Jewish themselves. And so they enter the synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. So this passage reminds us that we as Christians must be clear about our intentions and about our expectations. We don't have to run around camouflaging our intentions or expectations. Our intention as Christians is to convince others of the truth of God's word. Don't be shy about that. Don't be ashamed of that. That's who, we are witnesses. We are heralds. We are ambassadors. Think about all this great nomenclature that's used for us in the New Testament. We are God's mouthpiece. So, of course, we're trying to convince others to believe what we believe. Why else would Paul be in a synagogue in Iconium if not to convince others of the truth of the gospel? And Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas, again, spoke in such a way or in such a manner, depending on your translation, that a large multitude of Jews and Gentiles were convinced about the person and work of Jesus Christ. He wanted to be convincing. He was convincing. And many of these people were convinced. So our intention as Christians is to convince others concerning the truth about Jesus and then and it starts with the gospel. It starts with trusting in the person and work of Christ. But what does the rest of the Great Commission say? It goes on to teaching these new believers to obey what? Everything that Christ commanded. Everything that Christ commanded, which is what we have in Scripture. So that's our intention. We can be clear about our intentions. right? I tell people, friends of mine who aren't Christians all the time, I'm like, of course I would want you to be a Christian. Like, I think that forgiveness and eternal life is on the line. I think eternity is on the line. So, of course I want you to believe these things, right? But I also admit freely that I can't change their mind. I can't change their heart. That's not my business. But I am supposed to be the one that they can turn to to say, what is this whole Jesus thing all about? And I can explain it to them. I can't change their heart. I can't change their mind. And we can be honest about that. So that gets me to the next point is that our expectation should be that some people will be convinced by the truth of God's word. That should be our expectation. Some people will be convinced while others will remain unconvinced. And we have no way of knowing exactly how that's going to shake out. Right? Sometimes it's the person that you least expect that becomes a believer. That's why all the believers were shocked when Saul the persecutor showed up to church back earlier in the book of Acts. Sometimes it's the person you least expect, and sometimes that person that really seems interested in those spiritual conversations just never gets over the hump, never reaches out and takes hold of salvation in Christ through faith. We don't know how this is going to shake out, and that's not our business, okay? We just are there to be witnesses, ambassadors, heralds, Paul knew that God had softened some of the people's hearts in Iconium, just like he had softened Paul's heart to believe, to respond to the gospel. He knew that. But he also knew that others would remain hard of heart. They would remain hardened to the truth of the gospel. And he certainly wasn't surprised. I mean, think about his track record so far, right? He wasn't surprised 
when his Jewish opponents stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against Paul and Barnabas? And that term embittered is a really cool term. The, the Greek term that we translate embittered, it basically means to cause someone to have hostile feelings of dislike towards someone else. You see that all around today in personal relationships and media and all over the place in our culture is if you disagree with that person, you're going to convince other people to have hostile feelings towards that person, either by creating some straw man for what they supposedly believe or just putting them in a negative light, right? And you want to kind of team up against people. And so that's what happens. We are opposition, just like in Paul's day, embitters other people against the people that are speaking God's truth. But in the face of that kind of opposition, Paul stayed even longer. Some people think that there's an, there's a, an error in the text here. Is <laughs> because they get to verse 3 and it says, therefore or so. And it's like, wait, so, so he's facing all this opposition. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. And so some people are like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, I think if you know Paul, that makes perfect sense. That the more the opposition ratcheted up, the more he wanted to stay there to, to preach the gospel and to help people understand and to help clarify the truths about the personal work of Christ. So the, the opposition ratchets up while he stays even longer and preaches even louder with Barnabas. And how is that possible if not for moral courage? With moral courage, we can speak truth confidently, just like Paul. But it's really important to understand something here. Our moral courage ultimately comes from the Lord. If you're sitting there thinking, gosh, yeah, I, you know, I just, I don't feel like I could ever have that conversation with someone, right? I just feel kind of like uh, that's not me, you know? Well, it's not you, and it's not me either, okay? The only way we're going to be able to live like this is by God's grace, through trusting in Him, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. That's the only way we're going to have the moral courage to do the things I'm talking about today. So please don't walk out the door with this huge burden on your shoulders like, i got to be a better evangelist. i got to be a better witness, a better ambassador, a better herald for Jesus Christ. And it's all up to me. And i got to fix myself because I don't feel super courageous. The best thing you can do is to take that feeling, that lack of courage, that tendency toward cowardice that we all have, and embrace it. And say, Jesus, I can't do this. I need you. And I'm willing to dump out whatever's in my cup so that you can fill me with your spirit and, and embolden me to be the witness that you call me to be in whatever context that is. And that's why Paul asked for prayer, like I talked about. That's in Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. It's one of my favorite things that Paul says when people are like, how can I pray for you? You know, like, do people ever ask you that? Like, how can I pray for you? I started a couple years ago uh, when we were starting Whiteside, I started asking for this prayer. Paul says this to the Ephesians and probably other churches too. He says, he wants them to pray that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He's writing this from prison. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That's a great prayer. Somebody's like, hey, how can I pray for you? Just point them to that. It, would we all uh, be blessed to have that? So when Paul was in Iconium, where he is in our passage today, the church in Ephesus, it didn't even exist yet. This church he's asking to pray for him in that way, it hadn't even been planted yet. But his home church in Antioch, 
where he was commissioned. Remember where they laid hands on him and Barnabas and they sent them out on behalf of the church, sent out by the Spirit, but sent out by the church as well. You know that those men and women, and probably children too, in Antioch were praying for him. These exact same prayers. That they knew he was going to face hard, hard times. He, they knew he was going to face opposition, both, both physical, human opposition, but also spiritual opposition. And I bet you they were praying for him along these lines. And the Lord was answering their prayers, and we see it just in his powerful witness that's demonstrated in Acts. So look at verse 3. It says, Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be performed by their hands. So we learn two things from Paul's example here. First of all, the Lord gives confidence to his messengers. Enough said. The Lord will give confidence to his messengers, including you and I. Second thing, the Lord also gives confirmation to reveal the truth of their message. Now, in our passage, that confirmation, and and elsewhere in the book of Acts and elsewhere in the Bible, that confirmation of the truthfulness of the message of God's messengers comes in the form of signs and wonders. This was Paul healing a paralyzed person or miraculously healing a leper or raising somebody from the dead or something else, right? There's signs and wonders that take place in the ministry of Paul that confirm the message of the gospel that he's preaching, okay? Now, in our lives, that that could certainly, the confirmation of the message that we're preaching to people and, and telling people, speaking boldly about, about God's truth and specifically about the gospel, that, that will be confirmed by God. It might happen in some miraculous, you know, fantastic way. That could absolutely happen. But it also could look like a spirit-empowered life of spiritual fruit. It could look like you looking different than the rest of the world as you engage in this relationship with this person that, that is asking about the Lord or that you're telling about the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Like, there was a, there was a ministry of signs and wonders with the apostles okay, in the apostolic era. And I'm not saying that miracles can't happen today. I absolutely pray for miracles all the time. But that miracle could also simply be you living a miraculous spirit-empowered life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, especially in the midst of opposition, especially in the midst of pressures and trials and everything else. You know, God might use that in your life to help confirm the truth about what you're telling people, right? And that's all from the Lord. And the Spirit is also working in other people's hearts. You, you gotta, we got to, we cannot afford to forget this. Is that you're going to feel clunky and like, oh, I wish I had said this like that, or I didn't really have an answer to this or whatever else, right? We're all going to feel that at times. That doesn't mean we shouldn't get better at knowing what the gospel is and how to share it and listening to people and, and listening for where their pain points are, where their questions are in life and addressing those questions as best we can. Of course, we're always going to be growing in that way. But oftentimes we're going to think, oh man, I really botched that. In our heads, we're thinking it was up to me and I messed it up. But what we have to remember is that the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts and minds and lives of all those people that live around you, all those people in your family, your neighbors, your co-workers. He, it, He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere working in everybody's lives. And he can confirm the things you say. This has happened to me before. 
where I'm talking to someone about something and then some thing, some circumstance in their life that I have no power over whatsoever confirms the very thing that we were talking about. And they come back and say, you know that thing we were talking about? And then this happened? And I'm like, praise Jesus. Thank you. He's working in people's lives, and we have to realize that. In all of these ways, God is confirming the truth of his word, okay? And that brings us to one final benefit of moral courage. With moral courage, we can speak truth consistently. And and this is an important aspect of Christian witness because our circumstances are constantly changing. And if our message changes with all of our changing circumstances and seasons of life, we got problems. We got trouble with a capital T, right? Isn't that the music man? Yeah, there you go. Um, If we allow the ups and downs and ins and outs and differing seasons of life to change what we say, what our message is, how we say it, then we're in trouble. So with moral courage, we can speak truth consistently. And in the final verses of our passage, we see Paul's circumstances changing in two specific ways. They're changing in terms of local opposition to his message, to the gospel, and they're changing with regard to new opportunities that the missionaries are facing, new opportunities to bring the gospel even farther along, to to go elsewhere, other locations with the gospel. So let's look at those. As God's chosen representatives, we must remain consistent when opposition arises, okay? And uh, this is, oftentimes, this is what the opposition is trying to do in, in the context of Scripture, but all over the world today. Opposition to the truth of Jesus Christ, to the truth of God's Word, oftentimes it comes in the form of intimidation, you know? It's funny, I was just reading, I'm reading a book about the history of the American West, and Theodore Roosevelt had a cattle, before he ever got into politics, he had this cattle ranch up in South Dakota, and there was some French marquee that had this huge operation next to him, and, and it was all federal land, so you could just get as much grass as you wanted, right? So, so they send this posse with, like, pistols and rifles to, like, go, like, intimidate Teddy Roosevelt. And he's, he's not home because he's away hunting grizzly bears in the Rocky Mountains. And so he comes back, and he gets the message that, like, they're like, yeah, if you want some grass, you can pay for it, the free grass, right, to the marquee, the French dude. And so he gets a rifle and a pistol and brings the message and goes to the guy that was leading the pack and says, I'm sorry, could you explain this to me again? And the dude's like, ah, that was, that was an unfortunate mistake. I'm sorry. Uh, don't worry about that. You know, rips up the thing. For then I didn't have any problem with grass. But the point is, they were trying to intimidate him. They were trying to, to kind of flex, to kind of bow up on him, right? Well, the same thing's true. We don't need pistols and rifles like Teddy Roosevelt on his cattle ranch. But the same thing's true about us. If we're speaking something that is contrary to the ways of the world, that cuts across, across the grain of culture... If our spiritual enemy doesn't like what we're saying because it's robbing people out of his kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of of God's son, Jesus Christ, that's going to stir up some opposition at a spiritual level and at a human level. And oftentimes it's going to look like intimidation. It's going to look like, hey, you know, you keep talking like that. You're not going to have this job anymore, whatever, right? Um, We can't be intimidated. We can't change our message based on opposition, okay? So look at verses four and five. Look at the state of things in Iconium. It says, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, while others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers, 
which is a weird combination in those days. The Jews and the Gentiles, their rulers, their rulers, all coming together to like intimidate Paul and Barnabas, okay? And, and when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to treat them abusively and to stone them. So the result of Paul's preaching was what? It was social division, divisiveness within that society and severe aggression against the speakers of God's word, okay? Severe aggression and social division. And most of us will never face the kind of persecution that Paul's facing in this passage, at least most of us right here, okay? Now, there's people facing worse all around the world every day, even now, okay? But most of us won't. But if we speak God's truth consistently, I'm going to make, I'm, I'm no prophet here, but I'm going to, I'm going to sort of make a a prophecy, so to speak. If we speak God's truth consistently, then we can certainly expect division at some level and some level of aggression towards us. I mean, you're kicking the hornet's nest if you're going to speak God's truth consistently, okay? Okay, so that's opposition. We, We also have to remain consistent when opportunities arise, when circumstances change. Look at verses 6 and 7, our last two verses. It says, They became aware of it, that's this impending persecution, and they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there, what did they do? They continued to preach the gospel. So even though Paul and Barnabas initially stayed even longer in Iconium, to convince as many people as possible about the truth of the gospel, eventually they did leave that city. They didn't go to their death in that city, okay? That wasn't what God had for them. There was a different opportunity that arose. But preaching truth doesn't always mean that we must embrace potential persecution. I mean, Paul himself fled persecution in Damascus when he first became a Christian. We have stories of other apostles and other Christians and and, and missionaries leaving, getting away from the persecution so as not to die. Not because of cowardice, but because this is where God was leading them. He wasn't done with them. He wanted to move them out to other areas, okay? So here we see Paul making the decision to move on to other cities. Why? Not because he was a coward. He had plenty of moral courage through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's because he wanted to bring the good news of Jesus Christ even farther and farther out to more and more people. But even in those new places with new people around him, he remained consistent in his purpose of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And that was his first step. However, eventually he was going to help establish churches in these cities and in these villages, in these towns, so that those new believers that had trusted in Christ for salvation would also learn to obey everything that Christ had commanded. And in doing so, those new believers would develop the same kind of moral courage exhibited by Paul and Barnabas and Christ, ultimately, by the way, so that they too could speak the truth of God convincingly, confidently, and consistently in whatever circumstances they happen to find themselves. And the same is true for you and I as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Many of you guys... I think most of you, you received a text from me this last week. I want to explain that. And first of all, I just really appreciate the, the uh, responses that you've sent in with the questions. But basically, the elders and I, in light of everything that's going on in our country and our world right now, we wanted to know what questions you guys had concerning abortion. Um, can't think of a more divisive issue right now in our country 
So we wanted to poll you guys, find out what kind of questions you had about abortion, okay? And again, I appreciate the questions you sent in. You guys have seen the news. There was a leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision. Uh, basically, if it, if it stays intact, it would be a 5-4, at least a 5-4 divi- uh, decision at this point, to overturn Roe v. Wade from 1973 and uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Um, you guys have seen this, maybe read the text, okay? It broke uh, a couple weeks back. Um, There's probably no way to overstate how much of a hotly debated topic this is in our city, in greater Austin, in our state, in our country, and yay, unto the ends of the earth. Okay, the whole world is abuzz about this. Um, And I want to be honest with you about something. I am personally really hopeful. I'm really hopeful about the circumstances in our country right now. And I want to explain that to you. I believe that this will lead to an unbelievable number of spiritual conversations. You know why? Because if we engage in this issue at all, there's no way we can't have spiritual conversations with people. I think this is going to lead to so many spiritual conversations because the issue of abortion touches on everything from the existence of God, the reality of God, his purposes in creation, and specifically in creating humans in his image, what that's all about in Genesis chapter 1, the reality of human life and its inherent value and dignity, it touches on that, the nature of human beings, including human personhood, what, what does it mean to be human, what is personhood, these are the types of things that this issue is stirring up in terms of questions and conversations. And, I, and I'm super hopeful about all the Christians that God has placed around the world to help lean into these conversations. Um, I believe that these spiritual conversations around the issue of abortion are going to lead more people than you can imagine into the arms of our Lord Jesus Christ to find forgiveness and healing and salvation, eternal life. I think that's going to happen as a result of everything that's going on. And folks, as our world wrestles with this issue of abortion, it is so important to understand that God has already given us the Bible as his authoritative word. We know that as Christians. Again, that gets back to what we're talking about in the sermon. We don't have to be shy about the fact that we believe that the Bible is God's word, that the Bible is God's authoritative word on all things of life and faith. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible talks about Everything in specific details. I mean, they weren't talking about satellites and things or, right, whatever. But there are biblical principles that can be applied to every situation in life and faith. And that's what we believe about the Bible. We don't have to be shy about that. But it's also important. It's not just that we have God's Word. It's not just that we have the Bible. But we, as biblically-minded Christians have been intentionally, purposefully sprinkled around the world, sprinkled around Greater Austin, sprinkled around the neighborhoods we live in, so that we can be salt and light in the relationships that God has sovereignly blessed us with in our lives, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the stranger at the bus stop next to us. He has sprinkled us throughout society as biblically-minded Christians to represent God's truth and to help lead others to it. And our intention can be clear that we want to convince other people of what's true, what God's word says. 
But we're going to need moral courage to do that so that we can speak biblical truth convincingly, confidently, and consistently, especially as we face increasing opposition in our culture, in our society, just like Paul did in today's passage and all throughout the book of Acts. And in terms of application, I want to think about abortion in terms of our three core values here at Wayside. Our God-given moral courage, because don't miss that when you walk out here today. It is God-given moral courage that we're praying for. But our God-given moral courage will help us to approach the issue of abortion biblically, relationally, and purposefully. And I want to end our time talking about those three things, our three core values. Biblical, relational, and purposeful. Biblically speaking, we need to make sure, absolutely sure, that our views are aligned to the truth of God's Word. Not every line of argumentation, not every line of reasoning is equal from a Christian's perspective, okay? First and foremost, we give the highest authority to God's Word. So we have to make sure, and, and I get it, right? We all grew up in the world. I didn't become a Christian until I was 23. I had 23 years to have lots and lots of secular perspectives and worldview elements and whatnot just jam-packed into my heart and my mind, okay? And it takes time to work through those things. You don't even know what you believe about things. You don't even know how you've been affected by the world you've grown up in and the family you've grown up in until you start to ask hard questions and dig into Scripture and seek answers. And then you start realizing, wow, okay, I don't know why I believe that. Man, I was just raised that way. That was just what my culture was like, whatever else. But we have to go through that process. So biblically, we have to make sure that our views are aligned to the truth of God's Word, and we must do the hard work of seeking a biblical understanding of issues like this, issues like abortion. We can't just say, yeah, the Bible's confusing, whatever. I like this argument, right? Or I really respect this person, and that's what they think, right? We can't do that. We have to ask hard questions. And we must ask and answer difficult questions that the people around us are seeking an understanding on. I mean, think about this. People are asking these questions, non-Christian people and Christians. Can we trust what the Bible says? In what sense is the Bible authoritative? Does God even exist? Are we created beings or not? Does life even exist? And Chris gave me some great feedback on this, not to call you out, but he's like, I said, in my notes, I said, does life even exist? If it is a real thing, when does life begin? And he's like, you know, you could probably just sum that up by saying, when does life begin? You can't. There are people in our culture, I'll send you a Scientific American blog post, that think that there's no such thing as life. Not that life begins at this point or that point. They literally think there's no difference between a Lego set and a cat. That there's no distinction between inanimate and animate objects or things, except for just levels of complexity. But they're just taking that atheistic, materialistic worldview to its, to its nth degree. And in some sense, I actually appreciate that. Because they have to come to certain conclusions about things. And so this idea of life being some sacred, magical thing like, doesn't compute with them. Right? Well, we obviously believe that life does exist, okay? But does human life have inherent value and dignity? Is it ever morally acceptable to end a human life? What constitutes human personhood? Does personhood require consciousness? Well, if you read Peter Singer, the philosopher who's at Princeton now, I think, he'd say no. Right? He'd say if a newborn baby particularly if it's disabled, but if, if it wasn't disabled, a newborn baby and a mature chimpanzee fall into the water, 
he would say you're morally obligated to save the chimpanzee and let the baby go, right? Yeah, he's Oxford-trained philosopher. It's Peter Singer. Go look him up sometime. He takes it to the nth degree. And again, I kind of appreciate that, actually, because he's basically he's trying to take these things to their conclusions. Does personhood require consciousness? Does personhood require a certain level of ability or developmental maturity? Folks, I'm thankful that the Bible answers all these questions and so much more. And I look forward, hear my pastor's heart on this. I look forward to lots and lots of conversations and coffees and workshops and digital resources and book recommendations and everything else to work through these issues with you guys. I'm not going to go into all the details of a biblical worldview on this issue right now. We're going to have lots of time to do that. But I just want you to know that I am confident that together as a church family, we can approach this issue and many others over the years with confidence in awareness of the biblical and theological positions and considerations that touch on these issues. And we're going to work through that together, okay? Relationally speaking, let's move on. We must reveal our love for God in the way we love our neighbors, regardless of their position on issues like abortion. We don't get to say, I don't like your position on this. I'm not going to love you as my neighbor anymore. We don't get to say that as Christians, okay? And the way that we love one another in the church, we don't get to say, well, mm, I'm not going to love you, fellow Christian, brother, sister in Christ. However, that being said, now listen carefully to me, one of the greatest lies that many people have accepted in our age, in our culture, is this idea that we cannot love people with whom we disagree. I don't know that there's any more insidious lie that people have bought into than the lie that you have to agree with someone and support their position and celebrate it in order for you to love them. We all know at a base level that's not true. I mean, Scripture makes it clear not only that we can and should love even our enemies, even those people nailing our hands and feet to a piece of wood so that we can die the most painful death imaginable, that we can pray for their forgiveness and show them love without supporting their position, but also that our love can and should be expressed in boldly speaking what we believe to be true about God and man and sin and salvation and every other topic the Bible talks about. And in regard to our purpose as Christians, we must embrace an approach to this abortion issue that is multifaceted. We can't just be the talking mouths. We also have to be the beating hearts and the hands and feet, okay? So first of all, this multifaceted approach to the issue of abortion, if the inhabitant of the womb is a living human being created in God's image, if that is true, then we must do everything that we can in our society to protect the rights of those incredibly vulnerable individuals. Do you understand what I'm saying? If that is true, and they are human beings created in God's image, and we'll get into all the details of that as we work through in these workshops and conversations and stuff we're going to have, what the Bible says about that, but if that's true, then we have to help them and this is in line with God's call to defend the most vulnerable people in our societies. The widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the foreigner, the stranger, the refugee, the asylum seeker, 
and the unborn child, if that is true. But there's another facet to this that often gets missed, and I do not want to miss it today. There are others who need to experience the love and truth of Jesus Christ through their interactions with Christians, through their interactions with you and with me. They need to to, to see the love of Christ, to experience it, to hear the truth and how the love of Christ that they're experiencing supports that truth that we're speaking. So how can we come alongside the pregnant woman who doesn't wish to raise her child or doesn't think she has the resources, financial or otherwise, to do so? How can we come alongside her? And that's exactly why we partner with organizations like The Source, because they specialize in supporting and resourcing these moms-to-be. Uh, We also partner and support organizations like Fostering Hope to help encourage, equip, and support adoptive and fostering parents so that there's a home for these children once they're born to go to through the foster care and adoptive process. And how can we come alongside those women and men who have already made the decision to have an abortion? How can we come alongside them too? There have been at least 70 million abortions since Roe v. Wade, since that decision written by Justice Blackman in 1973, and probably untold millions more. I'm talking about in our country. I'm not including elsewhere in the world. There's been hundreds of millions since then throughout the world. And that means that thousands, if not millions of people, men and women alike, are haunted by those decisions. And more than anything, they need to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, and that he rose again so that we could have forgiveness, so that the guilt and shame of our sin could slide off of us and be left at the foot of the cross, be left on the shoulders of Jesus Christ to die for, to put away once and for all. They need to hear the good news of that salvation that we have in Christ, that new life that we have in Christ. And uh, I'll just conclude by pointing out that in today's passage, we saw Paul speaking truth convincingly, confidently, and consistently. And he probably had plenty of people back in Antioch praying for him for boldness of speech, for the, for, to, as he put it, to speak the way he ought to speak. And folks, that's my prayer for Wayside too. Not just with the issue of abortion, but with any issue that comes up, with any aspect of God's truth, that's my prayer for you guys, is that we, as we seek to be salt and light in a, in a city, in a state, in a country, in a world that is increasingly divided and divisive on all sorts of issues, not the least of which is abortion, I pray that we too would be able to speak boldly as we ought to through the power of the Holy Spirit, not without love, but in fact with a love that this world has never experienced outside of Christ. And I'm excited to be with all of you in this moment in history as they're probably going to drop the decision from the Supreme Court next month. So we're already seeing what we're seeing. I don't know what this summer is going to look like, but I'm confident and hopeful that we're all going to have a lot of opportunities to have spiritual conversations with people we love along these lines, okay? All right, next week we have another service Sunday. And we're going to get you the details on those service projects, as Chris pointed out. But in the meantime, just plan on being up here at 9 o'clock next Sunday morning out in the parking lot. We're going to do our stone stacking ceremony, and we're going to break off into different service projects. We'll do that next week.